Utah Lacrosse Report. I'm your host, Tim Haslam. I hope you had a great 4th of July weekend and that you are staying safe out there. In the newsletter last week, I talked about Mason Goodhand retiring from Westminster. I had the chance to talk to Mace about his time at Westminster and more. It was great catching up with Coach and getting some great stories about the beginnings of lacrosse in Utah. Mace talked about a bunch of different things, but one of his favorite memories was beating BYU in 2015. It was the first in-state loss for the Cougars in the modern era. I was at that game and it lived up to the hype. Looking back at it now, it was a culmination of the growth of the game in Utah. BYU didn't lose because they were down that year. They lost because another program had grown from nothing into something. Having several great college teams at the college level only helps the sport grow. Also in the newsletter, there is information about the Fairman Family Lacrosse Camp. Please support this camp if you are able. The Fairman Brothers are cornerstones in the lacrosse community, and this camp is their way of giving back. Here's the interview with Coach Goodhand. Welcome to the show, Coach. How are you? I am doing well, Tim. Well, real well. Great. Thanks for joining me today. Obviously, uh, you know, we're coming on the heels of you announcing uh, your retirement at, at Westminster. What's, uh, you know, kind of what led to that decision and, and where, uh, you know, how are you feeling about it? Uh, well, 14 years led to that decision and uh, uh, I feel great about it. I mean, it was 14 fantastic years uh, that followed five great years of running the Utah club. So almost two decades involved with the college lacrosse here. Uh, two decades of, of six that I've lived so far. Um, you know, and it was, it was uh, a really, really important part of my life. And, and uh, uh, I, I, I assume everybody would like to know what precipitated the change, but uh, it was time. I mean, it was really time. I went in and uh, the, the challenge for me and the amazing part for me was this love of lacrosse um, and bringing it to the community was something I had to balance with the job that, that paid the rent and put food on the table. And to be able to coach at a college level and have that college program grow with the with the university or with the with the college behind it to the highest level of college lacrosse you can get NCAA, um, you know NCAA varsity sponsored sport, um, all while being a part time guy um, was was quite challenging. And I'm now in the last inside the last two years of my aviation career, and need to spend a little more time in the air and fly in airplanes. Um, the aviation industry works a couple of different ways, uh, but basically if you're a commercial pilot, you can bid a schedule every month that picks the trips and where you go, and, and, uh, or you can pick a schedule that puts you on an on-call status and just gives you a certain number of days a month that they can't call you. And I lived for almost 20 years on that reserve schedule so I could sit in the office or be on the field with a suitcase in the car if they called, but but still get paid to be available to fly, even though often I didn't. And with only a year and a half left, uh, it was really a challenge to to fly that infrequently and stay competent. And so uh, with this COVID hit, the biggest demand that we have is to stay in touch with the kids and to be on the phone with them and to talk, keep them, keep them tied in and, and keep them going. And, and truthfully, a part-time guy um, couldn't do that. So it was time for me to give it to somebody that wanted to put in the, the time and the effort. And fortunately, I had one of those guys on staff and 
so the transition was very easy. Yeah, uh, you know, so for those who who maybe don't know, uh, Coach Coach Goodhand is a is a pilot for Delta and and uh, has been for many years. And uh, the coach you mentioned is Joe Kerwin. For those who don't know about Coach Kerwin, what are some of the traits and attributes that that you uh, like about Coach? <laughs> there are many. Um, all of the coaches that uh, joined me at Westminster for anywhere from one to five years over that 14-year span uh, were a huge, huge part of our success. And they were, you know, they were volunteer guys with, with other jobs. They were guys who were trying to scrape by on assistant coaches' pay while, um, you know, basically picking up part-time work to, to fill in. And without all of those guys, we would never have had the progress we did. Uh, the, the two that made it possible for us to move the program away from a club lacrosse team that coached up the kids who showed up in the fall and see how they did to a competitive Division II varsity program, the two guys held the number one assistant position which really focused on recruiting. And the first one was Brad Lavoie, and Brad did a bang-up job and was a great recruiter, great coach. Everybody loved him. But he also had a young family and had other commitments, and uh, I wasn't ready to get out of the way. And I'm not sure I'm not sure a head coaching salary would and the demand that it would take would work for a guy with two young kids. And, and uh, so uh, anyway, when Brad left the program five years ago, I found Joe Kerwin, and Joe was a high school coach in, in Bend, Oregon. Uh, he grew up playing the game in New Jersey, went to school in, in uh, Rhode Island, and uh, coached in the MCLA with a very successful program at Oregon. And that's where I first laid eyes on Joe and got to see how he, he coached and how he worked his kids, and, and really approachable, nice guy. Um, over the course of my Westminster career, while we were in the MCLA, I bumped into Joe from time to time and, and, uh, and once mentioned to him that if, you know, anything opened up, I'd be interested in, in talking to him about coming and coaching with me here. And it worked out for him. Uh, after a couple of years at Oregon, he got the job at NDNU. Two years there, they pulled scholarships and he decided that that was kind of contrary to what they had told him when he came in. So he went to Oregon, coached high school lacrosse and, and, uh, we reunited over a ski weekend uh, by coincidence it was the weekend we were having our lacrosse conference here. I think the last time we had a conference in, in uh, Salt Lake City, a coaches convention, if you will. Uh, Joe was in town skiing and he heard about the convention, came to a couple events. And, and so I got a chance to bring Joe to, to uh, Westminster. He focused on the, the operation and the, and the recruiting and did a great job. Joe's very well organized, uh, uh, kind of guy who always has a clean desk, not, not a strain, not a, a, an extraneous piece of paper. He's, he's very disciplined with his time and his organization and, and really capable of handling the demands of a head coaching position. And, um, and, oh yeah, by the way, he's a great tactician, a student of the game and, and the kids love him. So he was a great fit and I uh, was blessed to, coach alongside him for five years and thrilled that he's going to take the team to the next level. Coach, you're making me, you're making me feel old. You know, uh, when the release came out and said you'd been at Westminster for 14 years and now telling me that you've been with coach Kerwin for five, I, 
I could have sworn he got there yesterday, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. It goes by, <laughs> it goes by fast. And, um, I was reminiscing with someone, I was playing golf with a guy just the other day and he said, yeah, I, I played for one year, um, at Alta in 94. Well, that was our first year. And, uh, you know, the guy was in his forties and had his own kids that were in their late teenage years. And, and it just really, you know, resonated with me how deep our lacrosse community has penetrated this this zip code um it, it's uh it's great to see i can can remember i used to be thrilled if i ever saw a goal in somebody's backyard or a kid on a bicycle with a stick and now you can't get in the car and go to the store without seeing one or the other of those and maybe both um it's the game has taken its its place in in this town and it's been fun to be uh, be watching it go. And and you were certainly one of the catalysts in that. You know, uh, many, if not everyone, consider you one of the founding fathers, along with you know uh, Dave Allen and and uh, Coach Morris. And, and <laughs> tell us about what were those early days like, Coach? I mean, I, I wasn't just, around for them. So what were they like? It's a great story. And I I uh, I had been in town about a year, maybe less. Uh, we had moved here from Colorado Springs. I'd been with Delta three or four years and uh, got out of the Air Force while I was stationed at the Air Force Academy coaching. And uh, so I lived in Colorado Springs for a couple of years and commuted to uh, Texas to fly airplanes. And then we moved to Salt Lake City because it was a base city and I could finally hold a seat out of the uh, smallest airplane they flew here. And um, I went to um, I, I, I kind of sniffed out the game a little bit because I was active coaching just about everywhere I had been um, from the time I graduated. And I, I started a club at Sac State in the 80s, and I uh, helped with a program at Wash U in St. Louis uh, when I was stationed there. And, and then, of course, coaching at the Air Force Academy was, was the primary job. So when I got here, um, I sniffed out a program at Waterford that had a science teacher who played soccer and lacrosse at Cornell and convinced the school to add lacrosse to their PE curriculum. And they had bought 45 sets of gear. And in the spring, he would conduct a little lacrosse course that the kids would go through. And at the end of the year, they would scrimmage and play a game against a very loosely organized group of kids that were kind of from Judge and Highland, and and they were tied to a, I think uh, the the Utah Lacrosse Club at that time was a com combined men's league team and and college team, and so anyway, I went over and introduced myself to him, said, hey, if you'd like, I can referee your scrimmage. I I uh, have done some refereeing, and he said, yeah, that would be great. And by the way, his name was Bob Capner, and uh, so Bob put on a a scrimmage and I refereed it and it went real well and we had a lot of fun when it was over I you know he was he was really appreciative of me coming that way and I said uh, Bob you know if you're if, you, if you're interested at all and would loan me your equipment and your field I will see if we could do a clinic this summer and um, I'll organize it and we'll see if we can get 50 or 60 kids to give this game a try. And then maybe who knows, we could start a high school league. And he said, that would be great. So I had a connection from my hometown in Baltimore with the guy who uh, 
strung and repaired our lacrosse sticks when I was a kid. And uh, those lacrosse sticks were wood, of course. Uh, I was, it was 1970 or 71 that the first plastic sticks started coming out. I graduated from high school in 74. So when I was a, a youth player, we were all wood sticks. And um, that gentleman's name was Fielding Lewis. And Fielding had gotten a call from this company that made fishing tackle, made polymer fishing tackle for the boats in Baltimore and said, hey, we had this idea, somebody showed us of using our polymers to make a lacrosse stick, but we don't know anything about lacrosse sticks. Would you come down and oversee our operation? And later Fielding was the first president of STX and the, you know, the, let's see, that was probably 20 years into their life. And, and I called Fielding up and said, Fielding, I want to try to get lacrosse started here. Can you help me? And he's, I, I said, I don't have a whole lot of money, but I'm going to put on the clinic and he sent me a hundred sticks and it was $10 a stick because that's what the handles cost them. And the sticks were their rejects. So if they had a slight blemish and they didn't feel like they, they it was quality control, they threw it in a pile. And if they uh, had a custom die order and they misspelled the name on it, they threw it in the pile. So we had a hundred of these various colored STX lacrosse sticks that had misspellings on them and, and everything, but we got them for $10 a piece and he even paid the freight. And so we did a clinic for 35 bucks. A kid got a two week every other night camp and they got to keep their stick. And with all the money that we brought in, we bought helmets and gloves and that how those helmets and gloves became the beginning of what was the equipment rental at the Utah chapter which wasn't born yet, but, but, uh, so we, we next that right after that fall, we, uh, called a meeting. I called a meeting down at, uh, Sandy library and Brad and Dave showed up and a couple of, uh, Mark Stout from down in the Provo area. Um, uh, a little referee guy, Joe Adams, um, and about six or seven of us. And we just started planning together how we would start this league. And, and that's where it, that's where it took off. And I mean, you look at it now, obviously it, it's sanctioned, um, you know, thousands of players and, and to see, I mean, did you have any idea that it, at that point that it could turn into something so big? Well, I knew the passion that I felt for the sport and, uh, you know, I had been, I went to the Vail tournament when it was an Aspen, um, you know, so my roots in this, in this area, uh, were strong and everywhere there was a cult taste to anybody that was involved with the game. And, and, you know, you, everybody feels that now you, you feel it. you, you talk about having, you know, a, a need to get out and follow the sport. It has that effect on everybody that, that gets, gets involved with it. And, uh, so yes, I, I, I won't say I sat down and predicted this would happen, but I knew it was like having a small snowball on a very, very high mountain and pushing it over the edge that someday it would end up pretty big and, and lo and behold, it has. Sure. Uh, you know, so after that initial meeting, you get, you get all these teams going. Uh, what, what are some of your favorite memories, uh, you know, from say like the late nineties, early two thousands? The dingoes. Um, so my son was in kindergarten or first grade when we moved here and the first league we started for kids was four teams 
um, four teams that were fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, and that was the youth league. And we held it over. Uh, I live in Sandy, and we held it up up at the uh, Albion Middle School fields, and we had all four teams practicing on one field area to uh, to share the field. Um, and I, oh no, I take it back. We had two sharing a field and then we had two elsewhere. And uh, I'm sorry, the, the dingoes were a, a later team, but, but the, uh, the funny thing about that uh, first year was I finally had been, able, had, had been able to grow the game down from high school to where I had blood in the game. My son was fourth grader and he could start playing. And uh, I, I decided I would educate the community about the game. So I selected the four teams that made the final four in NCAA division one that year as the names of the teams of the kids. And so we had the blue Jays and uh, the Princeton Tigers and Maryland Terps. And I can't remember who, Oh, probably the orange Syracuse orange. So, so we had four uh, division one names for these teams, but there was a misspelling on the Princeton shirt <laughs> instead of Princeton the Ivy League team was called Princeton and uh, that that to me was just exactly what Little League was supposed to be it was supposed to be about the pizza parties after and the funny things that happened along the way and um, I, I, the, the other story I remember about that and I, I remember like it was yesterday is the uh, we I had three guys to coach the teams and I was struggling to find a fourth and um, the fourth was a Bengal team, like a Brighton team, kids from that area. And uh, they were the ones that shared the field with me. And so on my first practice, here it was, finally, the, uh, the Division I coach who, who coached at Air Force, was on the staff at Air Force, and started Little League here. And now, finally, his son was in his first practice with the fourth graders. And when those kids came to the field that day, man, my practice was an organized up two, three, four, no standing around drills and balls flying and kids running. And the young man that I, at the last moment, got to run the, the other team had a practice at the exact same time on the other end of the field. And while my 18 or 19 boys were just 90 minutes of movement and going Adams uh, Adams boys and I think his last name was Wachowiak but Adam went to Brighton High School and he went to uh, Texas A&M and was home for spring or home for the summer in mid-May or early May and said he would coach his little brother's team so Adam took all his boys and walked over across the field and they sat down under a tree and I got my first practice going and my kids are on their way to the cup, man. We are in one practice. We are learning stuff. And Adam's guys are sitting around in the circle laughing and hooping and hollering and never did anything else except sit in a circle. And I'm running my practice and I'm looking at all oh, poor Adam, man. He's way over his head. I got to find another coach for that team. He just doesn't, you know, he doesn't have it. And when the practice finished and the kids were all going to the cars, their practice ended, which means they got up from underneath the tree and they walked to the parking lot. And their guys were hooping and hollering and skipping and slapping high fives and were just having a blast. 
and my guys were dragging their equipment to the car. They were exhausted. You know, it was like, holy mackerel, this is lacrosse. And uh, so I reflected on that for a little bit. And Adam came walking across the field. I said, Adam, I'm, uh, you, you all right? He goes, yeah, man. And I go, do you, do you mind telling me, what did you do for an hour and a half over there today? And he goes, oh. He goes, we did the most important thing. And I said, really? What's that? And he said, we got nicknames. And <laughs> from that day on, I thought about that and thought how much life his kids had in them and how full of energy they were and how great they felt that they warranted one of their buddies making them up a nickname that he, they would be called while they were lacrosse players. And we used that. The, uh, when Andrew was in ninth grade, we went to start the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade league at Juan Diego as we were trying to get that school to recognize the sport. And the K through eight kids would come to a clinic that we would throw for free just to see if they wanted to throw, you know, have a lacrosse stick and throw it. And all the ninth and 10th graders ran that clinic. And the first thing they did, it, it, it looked like a frat party but they lined the kids up and three or four of the big shot ninth and 10th graders would have the boy walk up and they'd give him a nickname and send him on. And, and, and those nicknames were the only thing those kids at Juan Diego would put on their helmet. And for the longest time, that, that was all I knew of their names was their nicknames. I didn't even know their last name. And those nicknames lasted uh, a long time. Spray paint, was uh, Stephen Dunn's kid spray paint was his name and nickname and he and he went to uh, Colorado Mesa and they still called him spray paint and uh, so that was that was probably one of my my most uh, fun memories yeah and, and you know you went on to to coach at the University of Utah uh, in their club team and then obviously starting the the Westminster program tell us about the time at, at Utah uh, what was that like um, Utah was a, a, a neat challenge. We, uh, we, we had, we had a, re a rebellion team in, at uh, Juan Diego called the South Valley Eagles. And it was a rebellion team because the school did not want lacrosse to steal the athletes away from other spring sports. So they were very discouraging of us trying to start a club the first two years. And when, when the third year came, and the youth league in the K through eight, thanks to a lady by the name of uh, Lori Maddox, just blew up. Juan Diego had to pretty much say, okay, I guess we'll start a lacrosse team, but we'll pick the coach because they felt I had organized all of this and had my way when they didn't want it. So they didn't want me staying and coaching the team. And that was when my nephew spent one semester at Penn State after going to McDonough and winning a Maryland state championship and hated it and announced that he was going to go to Utah where uncle Mace was and, um, go to the university of Utah. And so I got fired, if you will, from coaching the South Valley Eagles and Pat Lambert got called in to, uh, to take over the program. And, um, my nephew moved out to go to the university of Utah and brought a couple friends with him, brought a couple friends with him from the East coast. So we, started the team there and and that was that was fun because those guys were 
coming out of high school with with uh, a lot of desire to um, play an organized level in college, and they uh, there weren't many programs around. If you didn't go to BYU, then you had to go up to Utah State or, or whatever, and, and the, the U team um, was ready for it. And they had a guy by the name of Robbie Bell who had won a state championship at Judge, and R.J. Smith, who was a great defenseman out of Park City, and and a couple other guys that could chug beer really fast. And we walked in and brought some guys, some ringers and kind of went from zero to 60. And before we left five years later, we were in the top 10 of uh, the MCLA. So it was, it was a blast. It was, it had uh, guys like Matt Mayer come out of high school and make all American in the MCLA his freshman year and jump right to Towson university. Um, you know, so we had some real Kyle Fiat was in our league back then. Um, Kyle was a was destined to go play football, and uh, he had an injury at Snow College, or or maybe it was Dixie. I'm not really I'm not really remembering, but he was trying to get into the Pac-12, and uh, his football dream ended. So he went to Utah State, where his parents have, had been professors, and and uh, in one year just tore up our league. He was just a phenomenal athlete, and. That was a year after Matt Mayer had made the jump to Towson. Kyle came to me and said, I understand you helped Matt get his foot in the door at Towson. Do you think I could play at that level? And my answer was, if, if this will get you out of my league, I'll be happy to find out. And <laughs> I was, Kyle was just a great, great young man. And he went in. They, Matt Mayer did so well at Towson when, when I called Tony Seaman up and said, Tony, how did Matt work out? Oh, man, this kid is great. We love Matt. And I said, well, if you like him, I got another one. And Tony just said, send him. And then Kyle, Kyle got there, and they were just absolutely blown away by his athleticism. And then both Matt and Kyle were, were just great young men who were eager to learn, first guy to practice, last guy to leave, work hard in study hall. And uh, those coaches weren't used to that because they had a lot of guys that were prima donnas in their high school programs and felt like the world was owed to them. So when they had two – two kids that wanted it as bad as Matt and Kyle did. Um, they were quite successful. Sorry, yeah, you know, no. then you – no, you're good. Uh, but then you get the call to, to start the Westminster program. At that point, you know, are you, you obviously took the job, so I'm, I'm assuming you're excited about it. But, you know, what were some of the early challenges that you faced? Yeah, well, uh, Westminster didn't even have a field. Their, their sports programs of the – of the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s had pretty much gone away. And the only thing they had was a basketball team and a soccer team. And uh, they, they uh, later uh, got a president who was from Brown University and a four-year lacrosse player at Brown. And he had a vision for the college to uh, put an athletic facility on the college where the old field, football field used to be and build a nice athletic uh, recreation complex with it. And so they fundraised and they got the money to do that. And the year that field was finished, he hired an athletic director. And his first thing on his checklist was find out how we can get a lacrosse team. And uh, that guy's name was Michael Bassis. And Michael uh, was a Brown alumni. And so when, when the board approved the budget, well, I should say when the board asked for a, the athletic director, the brand new athletic director for a budget, um, 
he called me because I was up at the U and asked me, Hey, if I'm going to put a team together here, how do we, how much, you know, how much is it going to cost me? I got to put a budget together. I don't know anything about who we play or how much refs are or whatever. So I built a budget for him. And, and meanwhile, he kind of showed me what they had planned for the team and where the locker room would be. And here's our brand new field. We just finished it this summer. And, and, uh, I gave him a list of five guys that uh, he should call because I thought they could, you know, they could be good candidates for coaching. And one of them was Craig Morris at Waterford and uh, probably Dave Allen at judge was pretty active at that time. So I gave, uh, gave him five, five guys and he called me back a week after we had gotten together and said, well, I got good news. The board approved the budget. We're going to have a team. And uh, so that's great. Glad to hear it. And, and he said, and we're going to start interviewing, but we'd like to interview you first. And truthfully, I, I will look back on the meeting I had with him and realized he was feeling me out a little bit. And uh, certainly he was doing that. He was also kind of showing me what they were going to throw at it in terms of support. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't really seek the job, but when they let me know what they were going to do and, and, uh, and offered it to me, it was a no-brainer. And the only stipulation I had was that I, he had to give me enough money for assistant coaches that I could have a good enough staff that if at any time I disappeared from my other job, they were okay with my assistant coaches running the show. And so Dave Long was nice enough to follow me up there. And Dave was uh, a great help when we started the Juan Diego program. Um, and, and so Dave and I started that program in 2006, 2007. Um, and, and, and just grew from there. We went division, we were division two for two years in the MCL or for five years, we were division two in the MCLA. Uh, but in our first year, we had some great kids come in. Um, and we had a Long Island kid that just happened to be at the school cause he, he was tied to a family in park city. And, and, uh, in our very first year we lost in the national championship uh final four by one goal um and it was absolutely an epiphany that the guys had with about six or eight minutes to go we were down by five goals and a little kid named jt nepiker was our star attackman he was a freshman and uh we were in in the last five minutes of the game we scored four goals we just uh, had a freshman named brett bird and Brett would not come off the field. He took every face off, he won every face off, and he brought it down. We threw it around and scored, threw it around and scored. And so we, we had been down to this team the whole game and had finally figured it out and were charging back. And with eight seconds left, we had the stick in Nebaker, was had the ball in Nebaker's stick. He swept lefty around the goal and fired a shot. The goalie never moved. And it hit, this would have been the tying goal. And it hit the pipe and rolled through to the midfield line and the horn sounded and the game was over and they beat us by one. And then they went on the next day and won the national championship. Um, it, it was Montana and they won the national championship the next day by 10 goals. So in the 2008 season, I didn't even have to coach the guys. They were, they had one thing on their mind and that was to get the national championship. And uh, it was a really fun year and uh, it coincided with my son's graduation from college. So I had to fly away from the tournament after 
the final four game that put us in the national championship game because my son was graduating from Bucknell the next day. And so I sat in a bar in uh, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and watched Dave Long coach the sidelines with my other assistant coaches. Um, and they won the national championship. And the, the quality of the internet back then and the video was pretty bad, but it was, <laughs> it, we beat Grand Valley and it wasn't even close. The guys just ran away with it and it was, it was fun to see. You felt like you really had done a great coaching job. And in reality, Montana had done the coaching job for us the year before. So. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, you know, it was just starting to get into the lacrosse, back into the lacrosse scene at, at that time. And remember uh, that game and, and being excited for you, you know, you went on to a couple other final fours. If I remember, you played UVU and Denver uh, one final four. And that's yeah. when they went on and lost to St. Thomas. And then, uh, you know, obviously success at, at the MCLA Division One level and, and at the NCAA Division Two level. What what are some of your, you know, you talked about those. What What's like the one game that stands out to you at, at, at Westminster? Well, that's an easy one. There's, I'm going to give you two, sorry. But the, the first one, um, we had made it in, we made the national tournament every year we were at MCLA club. And that, that was, I want to say, five or six years of Division Two, and three or four years at Division One level. We made the national tournament every year, which was really a great accomplishment. But one year, we kind of limped into it as number 10. And the number two team in the nation was a team from Dayton. And they were really full of themselves. They were just so cocky. And... Um, our best midi was a kid by the name of Gian Sexsmith from Park City High School. And uh, Gian's a realtor in town now. But Gian had gotten a Charlie horse, got a, a knee to the thigh the day before, the, in the first round game. And you know the MCLA, you play two games back to back, you have a day off. And if you're still alive, you play two more back to back. And, and uh, or I guess you have one day off on Friday. So, the point was we were in our second round game and our best midi couldn't walk because of this contusion on his thigh. And we're going in against Dayton who had just breezed through the um, first round game and we played them. And at the last minute we had to figure out a way to get Jan on the field. So we put him on the crease because he didn't have to move much. But if you could get G in the ball, man, he could shoot. And Gian had this eye of the tiger thing, man. When he's when 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 he was a hockey player, and when when the going got tough, Gian just got this laser focus. And we 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 didn't blow him off the field, but we just about led from start to finish and sent them packing the two seed after the second round. And that was as fun a game as I've ever been a part of. The second game, of course, was um, when we got a chance to take down the 900-pound gorilla, BYU. BYU had owned me uh, as a coach for every game, pretty much, from the time I was at Utah until 2016 at Westminster. And uh, we, I was trying we, – we, we had that little stadium. It seats about 2,000 people, and uh, it was – it was a showdown game for us, and we had steadily climbed 
and had actually gotten to a point where we um, had won, we had swept our Rocky Mountain Conference, which was BYU, Utah, and Utah was not as strong as they were in their last couple years of, of MCLA play, but it was always a heated game. But Colorado State and Colorado always owned us. And uh, that year we beat Colorado State, we beat Colorado, and our last game of the year was BYU, and they were great. And uh, we beat them 16 to 15. I'm sure you were there, Tim. And I don't think there was an empty seat in the place. And it was as good a lacrosse game and as exciting a game. And the crowd was just mesmerized by it. And at one point in the fourth quarter, I just turned to my AD and I said, this, this is what lacrosse can be here. This is, I just want you to know that this is what it's the way it's supposed to be. And that was that was sort of an aha moment for us in, in terms of bringing the sport a long way. If, uh, if you had to play uh, St. Thomas or Colorado Mesa, which, uh, which one would you rather play? Well, uh, both rivalry games are very important. And um, it, it really, um, it's, it's sixes. Uh, BYU was a great rival for us. They always made you raise the bar for what you did. And you always circle the date on the calendar. That's what Mesa has become for us in the division, uh, in the NCAA Division II world. And uh, St. Thomas was that when we were in the MCLA Division II world. So it, it really, it's, it's the same thing. Um, I had a much better relationship with the St. Thomas coach than, um, than I did with the Mesa coach because the Mesa coach is just very, he's not social when he doesn't win and when the season is on he doesn't like to be social he wants to keep you as the enemy so it was and he was significantly younger than I was and so I never really had much of a rapport uh beyond just polite politeness with the Mesa coach um the St. Thomas coach is, was a great guy his name was Mooseburger how can you not like a guy whose last name is Mooseburger and that's right uh, and the Mesa coach is, is a great guy. It's just he and I were on different sides of the line. And I'm sure if uh, uh, it was a different situation, we'd have gotten along famously. But he's a high energy, screaming, yelling type of a guy and likes to do a lot of uh, intimidation with the chants and the jogging around the locker, or jogging around the field and the warm ups. And I'm kind of a low energy warm up, let it all loose when the whistle blows kind of a coach. So it was always a change, a difference of style. Um, and, uh, and he, he, he has accomplished some great wins at that Mesa program. It, it has really done some great things to bring street cred to the West, but, uh, but I'm not the only coach that doesn't like to play them. Um, <laughs> so, so. What's so, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go what what's your take on the on the COVID thing? You know, a lot of a lot of people are are saying that schools are going to have to drop sports. You know, there's there's even arguments. I even saw one today before we jumped on that school should add sports because it adds tuition to the to the university. What where do you fall in that in that kind of in that school? Uh, an observer. I, I mean, I really think that anything <laughs> anything is speculation at this point. We're all we're all in an unknown, and and we really don't know what's going to happen in September. Um, you know, both of, both of the careers that I have been juggling are, 
at a crossroads or reinventing themselves and they're not really sure what they're going to be. Uh, Delta has done a fantastic job of getting after um, the, the cleanliness of airplanes, the wearing of masks, all the things that we need to do to make people comfortable to get back on those airplanes, Delta is doing and I think is an industry leader. I mean, we still don't, we don't sell a middle seat. Um, we'll sell an aisle and we'll sell a window, but the middle's blocked off. If you're flying with your wife and she wants to move over and sit in the middle seat, sit next to you, that's fine. But we, uh, right now, if, if you go get on an airplane and somebody refuses to wear a mask, they'll turn around and bring back to the gate and say, okay, wear, take your mask off if you want, but do it here in the, in the gatehouse because we're leaving and everybody is wearing a mask. So, so we're doing the things to reinvent aviation. Coaches are going to have to do that same thing. They're going to have to find a way to, um, you know, be able to take what's given them and rise to the top. And, and you know, they, the, the challenges of managing a team now, um, our trainer, our trainer has been as busy or busier now with nothing going on but preparing for the fall. Rick, Rick Hackford is his name. Than, than anybody I've ever seen because he's got to figure out, okay, how can we do this? How do we schedule the soccer team and, and the women's soccer team and the men's lacrosse team and the women's lacrosse team so that we don't have this huge mass of players in the training room in 30 minutes before practice. And, you know, so, so there's protocols and disciplines for taking temperatures before every practice and uh, isolating kids if they're, you know, if they have a temperature and, and it's just, it's just going to be a new world. Um, but more than ever, the kids need that opportunity to get out and run around. And um, from a, an athletic director standpoint or an athletic administration standpoint, so much is not known by those of us that have opinions on things like that. So much that what the, of what the college presidents and the boards and those people face how large an endowment is and what is the, uh, I mean, right now, Westminster is, is planning on in, um, in-person teaching this fall, but you know what? The uh, professors aren't all that fired up about standing for two hours with a mask on in a room full of teenagers who weren't known for their discipline at social distancing and wearing masks and, and uh, those things because they're, it's not as big a threat for them as it is for the professor who's 58 years old and, and two years away from retirement. Um, so there's just a lot that's going to happen that they, you just have to roll with and, and move on. And uh, I know the small colleges, they, they really they, they can't handle another semester of just online classes um, financially. You know, sure. they, they need to give the environment of the college. And so I guess we'll find out what herd immunity is all about and whether <laughs> all we, we uh, it turns out to be less threatening than, than was expected. Uh, if it's more threatening, then, you know, we, we could be in for more new times. Sure. I'm going to ask you a non-lacrosse non question. What's your favorite flight as a pilot? When, when you see it on the schedule, you, you get real jazzed about it. Yeah, I don't really have one. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I'll say, I'll say that uh, 
all the places you fly have something cool about them um, in in the later stages of your career um, you are chasing um, a large percentage of the guys are chasing the paycheck and the way you get a bigger paycheck is you fly the international flights you fly the bigger airplanes so for the last three years I have actually been working out of Detroit flying an Airbus to China or to Seoul or to Japan um, or to Amsterdam and those are the only cities that that we serve serve um, there were five cities uh, three of those five are closed down to us right now so um, we're not even flying there but but when I flew domestically and I flew out of Salt Lake on the 7576 they were all I mean all the layovers were interesting and the airports were fun and uh, I liked going back to the east coast I like going into San Diego San Diego is a short little runway and a mm-hmm. big park big parking garage out on the end so you You've got to manage your energy well. You can't be fast, and you can't be slow, and you can't be low, and you can't be high. And um, I really don't have a single favorite. Sure. What uh, What comes next? What uh, What is What does the future hold for you? Um, you, you know, I really um, I'm not I'm not making any firm decisions on new projects. I've enjoyed immensely having the spring off and just hanging out in the house and working in my garden and uh, the cherry trees. I, I was up plucking fresh cherries yesterday. Um, so I'm really enjoying being a homebody right now. Uh, I also have found a lot of love for golf and I play four or five times a week. Um, and um, from a lacrosse standpoint, I'm still a U.S. lacrosse uh, trainer, which is always challenging uh, to to uh, and and rewarding to go around the country and meet young parents who are into a sport they never played and they're trying they've got to be the coach and and to be be able to share the enthusiasm and give them confidence that they can be a great coach in this sport even though they never picked up a stick that's that's real satisfying but it, um, and and it's not it's not beyond reason that I'll end up coaching again but probably, um, probably not anywhere near the capacity that I was in before. So we'll see. Well, uh, you know, for, for my own sake, I hope to see you on the sideline again as, as a coach, but if not, I'm sure I'll see you in the stands because uh, my hunch is, you, you know, you'll, you'll catch a game here and there uh, just like the rest of us. Well, I'll tell you, if, if, if uh, I know this, this sounds funny for people that know me, but if the, uh, if the knee would allow, I would love to referee again. Um, I'm pretty hard on the referees as a coach, but that was because I spent a significant number of years learning the science of refereeing and the mechanics and the rules, interpretations and the split second decisions. And I wasn't a perfect ref by any way, shape or form. And in fact, I was probably mediocre at best but it was a challenge to do a good job. It was really rewarding when you did a good job because the kids had a safe game. It was competitive, but it was fair. And, uh, and I would, I would, uh, I'm sure there, I'm sure there are a lot of refs that would love me to get on the field because I certainly gave them a hard time in my 19 years between Utah and, and Westminster. If uh, I felt they weren't up to the, 
standard that we were expecting of them. And so this that would be their chance to say, see ya, your turn. Sure. Well, well, thank you very much, Coach, for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, like I said, you're, you're definitely one of the founding fathers of lacrosse in Utah, and, and I'm grateful for that. Obviously, it's had a big impact in my life. And thanks for joining the show, and uh, best of luck to you. Well, uh, Tim, and my thanks to you and the hundreds of people in this community who have just jumped in and, you know, done what they found their area and just had a blast with it. What you did with Utah Lacrosse News and what you're doing with this podcast and what you're doing for the University of Utah to help them stand on a, on a solid footing as they try to launch into the highest level of play. Um, I, I have only recently learned that, that the PLL is, is in Utah, their whole season <laughs> in Utah this year. Somebody was yeah. explaining to me, and, you know, I mean, how much more can we accomplish as a state? Uh, it's hard to say, but with talented people like you that give their lives and their time to the sport, uh, it has certainly been rewarding for the whole community. So thank you. 